Hey everybody, this is sort of the fourth and a half episode of SFD's series on Vietnam, in that it falls between the fourth and the fifth and doesn't talk all that much about Vietnam. I needed to get into some more stateside stuff, even as we keep the longer shows focused tightly on France's war, so I broke this one off. It's a day late, but whatever, because I think it's really good, and I'm trying something with a classical backing track too, so let me know if you like that, if you hate it, or if you couldn't give a rip. As I nearly always do, I sort of also forgot that I had to go visit my folks and renew my Mexican visa this week, so I'm gonna try to keep cranking on SFD while I'm home, but I might end up losing about half a week and delaying Vietnam 5 as a consequence. I'm sorry about that. Uh, share this show. Alright, we're not quite talking about General Delatra, the Central Highlands, or the road to Dien Bien Phu yet, but we are talking about George Frost Kennan, about containment, about the nature of communism, and about the way that the old, supposedly good, Republican Party of Dwight D. Eisenhower ruined American politics, possibly forever. I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal, to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. Like I said at the end of episode 4, the first Indochina war, there were some broader Cold War issues that I wanted to talk about, and some history that I wanted to churn through that didn't quite fit into the framework of the longer shows. That's because I want those longer ones to be narrowly focused on the French and the relevant US decision making, rather than a panoramic picture of everything going on in the world, because otherwise they'd be 6 hours instead of 3 and we still wouldn't have gotten even as far as we have now. 
Come next show, though, some of that American decision-making is going to be inscrutable unless you're already an expert on the period or unless you're as anti-American as SFD appears to be and you don't need to suss out the motives behind bad decisions coming from Washington. What this show is going to do is fill in those gaps in, hopefully, an hour, give or take. So at the outset of the Cold War, which, if you're being generous, began even before the end of the Second World War in Europe, there were two huge questions weighing on the minds of Western policymakers, and on the minds of the men in London and Washington in particular. First, what is communism? And second, what are we going to do about it? The first question sounds simplistic. Communism was, apparently, the doctrine laid out by Marx and Engels, elaborated on in the 1800s, put into power and developed by Lenin, and then fully realized under Stalin. But that apparent answer was actually the simplistic one. Was Stalinism communism? Or were the communists in the West who refused to join the Third International? At that meeting that Ho attended in France in the 1920s, were they the ones practicing real communism? If Leninism really had been communism, then how could Stalinism also be it? And what, for that matter, did that make Trotsky? Was what was happening in the Soviet Union in 1946 just more of what had been happening in 1918, or was it a departure? Communism had been internationalist for its whole intellectual life. That is, it had denied the legitimacy of states in favor of the cross-border unity of the working class. But the communists and socialists both had signed up to fight with their respective countries against one another in the First World War, and Russian nationalism had so overpowered communist internationalism in that country between the wars that Stalin signed a non-aggression pact with Hitler. The answer to what is communism was less than entirely clear, is what I'm saying. A lot of what I just mentioned is, in our terms, in terms of this show, minutiae. But the major sticking point for the folks in the 1940s that's important for us to know was this. Was communism a monolithic bloc, meaning that all communists and all communist parties owed allegiance and actually rendered obedience to the Third International, directed by Stalin from the Kremlin? Or was communism a more conventional political ideology, meaning that two communist countries were more likely to be friendly to one another, as two democratic countries are more likely to be friendly to one another, but meaning also that that friendliness was not guaranteed and that serious disagreement could and would arise between communist states. Even more particularly, in a given party, in a given country, what was more important, nationalism or communism? This ended up being the relevant formulation of the question, given that nearly all of the new communisms that would pop up over the next few decades were part of nationalist, anti-colonialist movements. That's been the case of the communists in all three countries that we've looked at on this podcast, Guatemala, Iran, and Vietnam. The answer to the second question depended on the answer to the first. If communism was like the blob, one entity gobbling up pieces of the globe and integrating them into a homogenous superstate determined to destroy capitalism and Western-style democracy, well, then it would make sense to expend all of the West's resources to oppose communism's slightest expansion anywhere in the world. It would have been a matter of political life or death. If, on the other hand, communism was a system of government like any other, inasmuch as it wasn't the one that we would have preferred, then we didn't really need any special strategy at all. We would work with them in exactly the same way that we were fine working with the France whose government was, briefly, controlled by the communists, as it was in 1946. 
Heads up here at the beginning, while we go through the discussion of these issues, we're also going to be following the career of George F. Kennan, who I admire and who I think was as right as anyone, from Caesar to Charlemagne to Bismarck to Roosevelt, has ever been in reading the status and predicting the outcome of the international situation. Kennan was pivotal in figuring out what U.S. policy would be towards the USSR in the immediate post-war, dealing with the answers to those two big questions we were just talking about. Right in 1945 and 46, though, while the issue of what communism was was already a matter of long-standing debate, it didn't yet have as much bearing on the question of what to do about it, because for the moment communism seemed to be self-evidently a solid block. While communist parties were flirting with power, as we saw last show, always with an eye to domestic politics rather than to Moscow, in France, and were fighting a civil war with British-backed monarchists in Greece, and another with Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist Kuomintang in China, there still weren't really any other communisms for us to look at or deal with besides the USSR. Sure, it now included the other republics of Eastern Europe, but nobody believed that any of those governments were anything but puppets. It wasn't a question of the new government of Poland or Estonia or wherever else, following the diktats of the Kremlin, because that was what communists would necessarily do, but a question of direct Soviet control, enforced through secret police forces and occupying armies. So the question of the immediate post-war was, how do we keep any more Eastern Europe's from being subsumed, and how do we do it without engaging in further war? George Frost Kennan played the major part in formulating an early answer to those questions. David Halberstam, who spent a long time in Vietnam reporting for the New York Times, and who wrote a couple of books that we'll be using if we ever get as far as JFK, also wrote a book about Korea called The Coldest Winter, and it's got a cute biography on Kennan. Quote, He was a brooding figure, much given to pessimism about political events, and often, for someone so intelligent and wise, surprisingly insensitive to the moods and feelings of others around him. Deciding to marry a young Norwegian woman, he had written his father in what has to be one of the most muted notes of all time when it comes to describing a youthful romantic impulse. She has the true Scandinavian simplicity and doesn't waste many words. She has the rare capacity for keeping silent gracefully. I have never seen her disposition ruffled by anything resembling a mood, and even I don't make her nervous. Unlike the other senior policymakers of the era, most of whom came from an already privileged American elite, Kennan was the product of a very modest middle-class home in Middle America, the son of a tax lawyer in Milwaukee. But in his own way, he was a considerable snob, decidedly uncomfortable with what he considered the great American unwashed, who, in his view, might hinder the ability of the elite to make decisions in a democracy." Unquote. Kennan was out of Princeton and two decades into a career as a foreign service officer with the State Department, serving out of the embassy in Moscow as deputy chief of mission when the war in Europe came to an end. On February 3, 1946, as Ho and Jean Santani were figuring out how to get the French north and the Chinese out of Vietnam, the State Department sent Kennan a cable in Moscow asking him to detail his thoughts on Soviet policy post-war and what we ought to be doing with it. Kennan sent an 8,000-word telegram in reply some 19 days later, saying that his answer, quote, "...involves questions so intricate, so delicate, so strange to our form of thought, and so important to analysis of our international environment, that I cannot compress answers into a single brief message without yielding to what I feel would be dangerous degree of oversimplification. I apologize in advance for this burdening of telegraphic channel. 
but questions involved are of such urgent importance, particularly in view of recent events, that our answers to them, if they deserve attention at all, seem to me to deserve it at once." Unquote. The so-called long telegram became an instant sensation in the Capitol, with anyone in the State Department, the White House, and Congress with enough clearance to see it passing it around to one another. It was largely what resulted in Kennan being recalled and serving under George C. Marshall when he was Secretary of State. Over the course of that telegram and a report that Kennan wrote the next year, which was turned into an article in Foreign Affairs titled The Sources of Soviet Conduct, but known as Article X because it was published under the eponymous pseudonym, Kennan laid out a roadmap for American policy, detailing what Russian behavior would be and why and what it was that the U.S. could do about it. Kennan wrote that the basic ideology of the Soviet regime that it and the capitalist world were in a state of permanent conflict, that real friendship or cooperation were impossible between capitalist countries, that time would prove the scientific rightness of Marxism-Leninism by way of inevitable proletarian revolutions in the capitalist world. All of it was not so much a serious statement of theory, given that the first two points had been proven wrong during the Second World War, but a formulation meant to prop up Soviet dictatorial power at home. The regime's state of permanent ideological war with the outside world was, quote, justification for the Soviet Union's instinctive fear of the outside world, for the dictatorship without which they did not know how to rule, for cruelties they did not dare to inflict, for sacrifice they felt bound to demand. Today they cannot dispense with it. It is the fig leaf of their moral and intellectual respectability, unquote. As long as capitalism had existed in some form in Russia, as it had until the mid-1920s, years after the revolution, in the middle class and in relatively wealthy peasants, those internal enemies served as the motivation behind the dictatorial power that the regime wielded and the security forces that it needed to stay on top. Once the regime had eliminated those internal enemies, though, the Soviets had to continually propagandize about external enemies to continue to justify the situation at home. What Kennan said, then, was that the Soviet Union's foreign policy would be geared at all moments and at every opportunity to increase the prestige of the regime and would be, towards capitalist countries, quote, negative and destructive in character, designed to tear down sources of strength beyond reach of Soviet control. This is only in line with basic Soviet instinct that there can be no compromise with rival power, unquote. But alongside that ominous-sounding description, Kennan noted that the Soviet outlook was more Russian than Marxist, paranoid, deliberate, and cautious. He wrote in both the Telegram and the article that the Kremlin was not interested in international adventurism, that it was very responsive to legitimate threats of force, and that, since it was possessed of a messianic philosophy in which it would always win in the end, it was in no hurry to implement any particular part of that plan. Meaning that, rather than going into a panic, quote, in these circumstances, it is clear that the main element of any U.S. policy towards the Soviet Union must be that of long-term, patient, but firm and vigilant containment of Russian expansive tendencies. It is important to note, however, that such a policy has nothing to do with outward histrionics, with threats or blustering or superfluous gestures of outward quote-unquote toughness. While the Kremlin is basically flexible in its reaction to political realities, it is by no means unamenable to considerations of prestige. Like almost any other government, it can be placed by tactless and threatening gestures in a position where it cannot afford to yield, even though this might be dictated by its sense of realism." Unquote. What this meant was that we should firmly and quietly oppose Russian efforts to support the governments of other countries 
and firmly, less quietly oppose any, more unlikely, Russian effort to actually take over other countries by force. Quote, but in actuality, the possibilities for American policy are by no means limited to holding the line and hoping for the best. It is entirely possible for the United States to influence by its actions the internal developments, both within Russia and throughout the international communist movement, by which Russian policy is largely determined. This is not only a question of the modest measure of informational activity which this government can conduct in the Soviet Union and elsewhere, although that too is important, unquote. Rather, quote, the United States need only measure up to its own best traditions and prove itself worthy of preservation as a great nation. Surely there was never a fairer test of national quality than this, unquote. Kennan elaborated on that idea a little bit further in a speech at the War College, a new military school set up to train the first generation of Americans who would be addressing the world not as minor players, but as leaders. What the West needed to do to win the world away from the Soviets had nothing to do with violence, war, or force, but with overcoming, more successfully than the communists, the problems of modern industrialized life. We needed to deal with, quote, the crisis produced by the growing disproportion between man's moral nature and the forces subject to his control. For us in this country, the problem boils down to one of obtaining a social mastery over the runaway horse of technology, of confining and bending to our will these forces, of creating here at home a stable balance between consumption and resources, between men and nature, in producing here institutions which would demonstrate that a free society can govern without tyrannizing, and that man can inhabit a good portion of the earth without devastating it. And then, armed with this knowledge, going forth to see what we can do in order that stability might be given to all of the non-communist world." Unquote. That is, while as part of containment we might reasonably want to do something to make Western Europe look less vulnerable to Stalin, for the most part, the best and maybe the only way to fight the worldwide battle for hearts and minds would be to serve as a beacon, as an example. Kennan continued to develop the idea of containment through to the end of the 1940s, the same period in which he was listened to seriously in Washington and invited into the highest circles of power. By 1948, he had a much more concrete idea of where and why containment ought to be pursued by our side. The first very important idea he established was that not all parts of the world were necessary for American security. He wrote that we should first select, quote, those areas of the world which we cannot permit to fall into hands hostile to us, and we should put forward as the first specific objective of our policy, and as an irreducible minimum of national security, the maintenance of political regimes in those areas at least favorable to the continued power and independence of our nation." Unquote. These areas were, to Kennan, absolutely vital industrial bases or territorial choke points. The nations that made up NATO, the Iberian Peninsula, and the north of Africa where it came to meet it at the Straits of Gibraltar. Latin America, quote-unquote north of the Bulge, i.e. adjacent to the Panama Canal, the oil producers of the Middle East, and Japan and the Philippines. And that was it. Now, what was important by this point was that Kennan explicitly did not say, and did not mean, that these were areas we could not allow to become communist. They were areas that we could not allow to belong to hands, quote-unquote, hostile to us. A second part of Kennan's reasoning was that the particular internal political organization of a given country was not our concern, even if that organization was communist. Quote, it is a traditional principle of this government to refrain from interference in the internal affairs of other countries. 
Whoever proposes or urges such an intervention should properly bear the burden of proof A, that there is sufficiently powerful national interest to justify our departure from a rule of international conduct which has been proven sound by centuries of experience, and b that we have the means to conduct such interventions successfully and could afford the cost in terms of the national effort it involves." Unquote. I think that's a good principle. And I think if you were looking back at, say, Guatemala and Iran and what happened after we tried to meddle in the internal political organization of those places, you could say that we did not have the correct answers to those questions before we decided to get involved. Kennan believed that diversity in international political organization, up to and including communist governments, wasn't necessarily a threat to the United States. Only where hostility was married to an ability to actually harm us was anything worth worrying about. And this is how he spells out his take on the nationalism versus communism question implicitly for the first time. Communism qua communism isn't a problem. Communism is not monolithic. Ergo, the degree of nationalism is an incredibly salient thing to investigate. In cases where some sort of intervention did seem to be necessary to our government, Kennan made sure to point out that we should only even imagine pursuing an intervention where, quote, there are any local forces of resistance worth strengthening, unquote. If there were in any given country, for example, strong traditions of representative government being threatened by a rapacious communist party, that would have given us some inroad for intervention. But, and think hard of Indochina and Vietnam here, where the choice was, as John Lewis Gaddis writes, between a potentially communist regime and some other variety of totalitarianism no less repressive, from Kennan again, quote, we have to be careful not to lend moral prestige to unworthy elements by extending American aid taken in relation to American security and American objectives. We are not necessarily always against the expansion of communism, and certainly not always against it to the same degree in every area. It all depends on the circumstances." Unquote. One perfect area to apply this principle would be, although it was a couple of years still down the road when Kennan wrote it, in Indochina and later in Vietnam. We opposed a very popular, ostensibly communist-run government in favor first of a French-backed puppet, and then later our own authoritarian regimes in South Vietnam, which were, body for body, much more oppressive than any government that had ever existed or would ever exist in the North. The same should now be obviously true at the very least of Guatemala, where we unseated Arbenz and then ushered in decades of genocidal conflict between the city and the countryside. Finally, in terms of an actual vision for the world in the post-war, Kennan said that, and we're taking from Gaddis here again, quote, the ultimate goal was not a division of the world into Soviet and American spheres of influence, but rather the emergence over the long term of independent centers of power in Europe and Asia. Our objective, Kennan told students at the National War College, is to make it possible for all of the European countries to lead again an independent national existence without fear of being crushed by their neighbor to the east. The first real implementation of that containment policy, contrary to the nuclear brinksmanship and violent threats that we tend to think of as containment, was the Marshall Plan. Kennan said we ought to oppose violent Soviet aggression, sure, but he also said that he didn't think there was going to be much or any of it, and that for the most part new communist regimes would only crop up if we failed to provide an alternate model. And to be clear, Kennan didn't mean the alternate model that we would end up providing in Guatemala and Iran, that is a coup and a return of our preferred stooges. He meant literally that we could provide something that looked so good, that gave off so much promise, 
that was making so much progress in solving the problems of the modern world that the communists just would not be able to compete. So for Kennan, maybe the most effective step we made towards a holistic policy of containment would have been the Marshall Plan. After the long telegram, Kennan became a bit of a celebrity in diplomatic circles, and he ended up working directly under General George C. Marshall, who was at that time serving as Secretary of State. Marshall took the brilliant foreign service officer under his wing and eventually had him set up a new body called the Policy Planning Staff, which I mentioned a little bit earlier, which was a kind of think tank within the State Department designed to bring together the Foreign Service's brightest minds to make long-term plans for American foreign policy. Cannon helped Marshall to design and draft the European Recovery Program, what became known as the Marshall Plan. Now, I would hope that there's not a man or woman among you who doesn't know what the Marshall Plan is, but just to refresh your memories, at the end of the Second World War, mainland Europe and the south of Britain were a mess, destroyed by a half-decade of battle and unconscionable, war-crime-worthy strategic bombing of industrial and civilian centers, with nearly all of Germany especially having been razed to the ground. Men like Kennan and Marshall realized three things about this situation. First, a similar situation had prevailed after the First World War. The continent had been torn apart, and when those wounds had been kept from healing by the poorly thought-out peace process at Versailles, the ugly peace gave rise directly to the extremist politics that resulted in the next war. Second, with the decisive defeat of fascism in said war, the superpower status of the Soviet Union, which had turned a backwater Russia into an industrial juggernaut, and with the well-organized communist parties competing for power in every nation in Europe, if things went extreme this time around, like they had last time, we would be looking at a fully communist continent. And the Soviet Union, even if it had never planned on actually attacking or invading the West, would have been happy to take the opportunity to move in and assume control in that case. And third, by virtue of the capital it had acquired through supplying its allies and through lend-lease programs, combined with the industrial base it had built up for the war, added to that it was practically the only country in the fighting that hadn't also been devastated by it, the United States had the industry, the cash, and maybe the will to fund the reconstruction of all of Europe, averting all of the evils that had arisen after the last war, and shoring up our position against the USSR in the bargain, which would probably prevent its pet nations, everywhere in Eastern Europe, from accepting that Marshall Plan aid. Now, whether a communist takeover to Western Europe was ever really a threat, given that the French communists that we've mentioned twice now, during the period when the US didn't want them invading Vietnam, during the period when they ran the French government, still could not find it in their hearts to make peace with a fellow communist government in Indochina for fear of domestic reaction, I think that the question of communist takeover is up for legitimate debate. What isn't up for debate is that U.S. policymakers felt communist incursion to be a real threat in Europe, and that the Marshall Plan, which poured more than $190 billion in today's dollars into the reconstruction of a devastated Europe, it definitively laid those fears to rest. Europeans got to see the absolute best in American diplomacy and American leadership, holding no grudges and giving freely of its incredible wealth for the well-being of other nations. The Marshall Plan worked on both fronts that Kennan had laid out in the long telegram and the X article. 
It helped to make Europe less vulnerable to its own communists by rebuilding its industry and economy, and in the process it aligned European politics and sympathies with the United States, which in turn made it easier to pull the Europeans into NATO and our other defensive arrangements, which further shored the continent up against any Soviet pretensions. The Marshall Plan worked so well that it might reasonably have become the model for all of our future anti-communist efforts. What I mean in the form of a short counterfactual is this. Imagine, thinking of Vietnam, that rather than acquiescing to them, that we had ignored empty French threats that they would not participate in the Marshall Plan if we didn't allow the recolonization of Indochina. Imagine that instead we had said to the Vietnamese as a whole, look, we'll include you folks in our reconstruction efforts in the same way that we're currently including the Japanese. We'll guarantee your sovereignty over and against the French, we'll facilitate and observe a national election, and we'll partner with whatever government you happen to elect. Ho Chi Minh would have won with his Viet Minh, sure. But he would have suppressed the Indochinese Communist Party the same way that he did in the real world without the promise of American participation, and we would have had a staunch, though pseudo-communist or socialist ally in Southeast Asia, avoiding two wars and giving ourselves another buttress against the Chinese, who the Vietnamese weren't fond of anyway. That didn't happen in the real world. We did not end up using the Marshall Plan as our overall model. We listened to the French and ended up embroiled in Vietnam, as you all know. So let's take a look at why that happened and why we didn't work on similar lines in other situations. We know in the first place, when the British decided that they could no longer support violent anti-communist efforts in Greece, and the financial outlay is necessary to prop up the Turks against Soviet demands for a naval base in the Turkish Straits, like we talked about last show, that Truman announced that we would take over those obligations. The Truman Doctrine was a departure from containment as originally envisioned. First, in terms of the immediate aims of the Truman Doctrine, Greece and Turkey, instead of winning the Greeks over, we took over the British effort to stamp out their most popular party and to impose, by force, one of our own choosing. This, a state which dictated what internal politics were permissible in other states, was not the model that Kennan believed we needed to be projecting for the world. Second, Kennan had outlined what parts of the world could possibly merit any kind of aggressive intervention, including violence. Those were areas with large, geopolitically vital industrial bases. Western Europe, Japan, Latin America above the bulge. Greece, with no industry to speak of, was not one of those areas. Third, Turkey was not yet quite industrialized, but more so than Greece, and more relevantly, access to the Mediterranean through the Turkish Straits was of actual strategic importance. It was one of the choke points that we mentioned. So that's good. That makes sense. But all of the domino theory rhetoric that Truman deployed in support of the position opened the United States up to much more wide-ranging commitments than Kennan thought was either wise or required. Said Truman, quote, it is necessary only to glance at a map to realize that the survival and integrity of the Greek nation are of grave importance in a much wider situation. If Greece should fall under the control of an armed minority, the effect upon its neighbor, Turkey, would be immediate and serious. Confusion and disorder might well spread throughout the entire Middle East. Moreover, the disappearance of Greece as an independent state would have a profound effect upon those countries in Europe whose peoples are struggling against great difficulties to maintain their freedoms and their independence while they repair the damages of war. It would be an unspeakable tragedy if these countries, which have struggled so long against overwhelming odds, should lose that victory for which they sacrifice so much. Collapse of free institutions and loss of independence would be disastrous not only for them, but for the world. 
Discouragement and possibly failure would quickly be the lot of neighboring peoples striving to maintain their freedom and independence. Should we fail to aid Greece and Turkey in this fateful hour, the effect will be far-reaching to the west as well as to the east. We must take immediate and resolute action." Unquote. And not only do we have to aid those two countries, just before, Truman had said that, quote, At the present moment in world history, nearly every nation must choose between alternative ways of life. The choice is too often not a free one. One way of life is based upon the will of the majority and is distinguished by free institutions, representative government, free elections, guarantees of individual liberty, freedom of speech and religion, and freedom from political oppression. The second way of life is based upon the will of a minority forcibly imposed upon the majority. It relies upon terror and oppression, a controlled press and radio, fixed elections, and the suppression of personal freedoms. I believe that it must be the policy of the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or outside pressures anywhere." Unquote. Truman continued by stating that our assistance would take the form of economic and financial aid, but that we were supporting one side of a war in Greece and would soon be doing the same in Vietnam gave the lie to that assertion. Now, fair enough, it wouldn't have sounded quite as good for Truman to have said, look, we'll leave pretty much anybody who isn't a close ally or an important industrial center alone, but we'll give them some cash maybe if we feel they're too important to be communist. But committing ourselves to the defense of peoples everywhere was a huge step towards the containment we grew to know, the kind that said putting boots on the ground in places like Vietnam was somehow essential to curtailing Soviet aggression in Europe. It was also a step towards saying that communism was a monolithic bloc, a position for which we had little evidence. As the years rolled on, developments around the world ratcheted up the Cold War tension, put increasing importance on the monolithic versus nationalistic communism question, and gave us just a little bit of evidence to use to decide what exactly communism was. In the years after 1945, the men in Washington had seen the transformation of Central and Eastern Europe into the Eastern Bloc and various Soviet socialist republics respectively, the Czechoslovak coup d'etat in 1948, the Berlin blockade and the airlift that we heard about in the historical audio last episode from 1948 to 1949, the worsening of Chiang Kai-shek's position in China from the end of World War II through his defeat and flight to Formosa in 1949, the development of Soviet nuclear bomb in 1949, and by 1949, a more and more vicious war in Indochina, which by that point was receiving serious aid from Red China, making Hoolook considerably less friendly to us. Especially after the so-called Fall of China, which doubled the number of communists in the world, or better, and which painted our maps red from Berlin to the East China Sea, along with the communist threat in Vietnam, scared our policymakers, and made that what is communism question assume overriding importance. If all of communism was one organic, coordinated body, then holy hell, the most powerful and largest empire in the history of the world had just come into existence, and had its sights set not just on Indochina, but Europe and the rest of the world. If communism was monolithic, then we had to head for the ramparts right away. If Mao was his own man, though, and only willing to buddy up to Stalin as far as that helped further traditional Chinese nationalist policy, then sure, that wasn't great, but it was hardly the end of the world. If communism could be more nationalist than internationalist, then we ought to start working double time to make friends with Mao, or working at least to put him and Stalin at cross purposes. Now, I said way back when that Kennan had spoken to this debate implicitly in the long telegram. 
He came down explicitly on the topic in the X article that I mentioned, The Sources of Soviet Conduct in Foreign Affairs, as early as 1947. He wrote in the piece about the machine-like unity of the Communist Party in Russia, the way in which the party leadership, meaning Stalin, could change the meaning of truth for whole swathes of the population with the stroke of a pen, and that the population was so well trained as to never question, which is the vision we get in Orwell's 1984. We have always been at war with Eurasia a week before we have always been at war with East Asia. What Kennan wrote sounded ominous then, and it sounds ominous now, as though all communist parties everywhere were in fact following the diktats of the Kremlin. But rather than stressing the unity of the movement, Kennan was already toying with the idea that the Kremlin line was really too rigid, too onerous for any country not directly under the Soviet thumb to actually bear. Moscow might be able to direct the clandestine activities of a small foreign party, but once that group had actually achieved political power, and had to respond to the particular necessities of its national situation, Kennan thought that an attempt by the Kremlin to exercise its hard-headed authority would naturally and inevitably drive a wedge between the Russians and any foreign communist party they attempted to seriously control. A strategy of fostering nationalism and friendship with the United States with any foreign communist party would work, he thought, because of the Russians' chronic inability to tolerate diversity. As a policy planning study done in the summer of 1948 noted, quote, The history of the Communist International is replete with instances of the difficulty that non-Russian individuals and groups have encountered in trying to be the followers of Moscow doctrines. The Kremlin leaders are so inconsiderate, so restless, so overbearing, and so cynical in the discipline they impose on their followers that few can stand their authority for very long, unquote. It was this propensity of the Kremlin, quote, to leave in its train a steady backwash of disillusioned former followers, unquote, that created opportunities for the United States. By the late 1940s, the truth of Kennan's thinking was already becoming apparent in a test case. It was the one really good piece of hard evidence, as opposed to the policy planning staff's more historically informed reasoning, that we had at the time. Yugoslavia. Yugoslavia had gone communist during the war under a man named Josip Broz Tito. Tito wasn't exactly cuddly, but he was no Stalin. He came to be known as a benevolent dictator, and he was legitimately popular in his country. Stalin had dissolved the Comintern during the war, I think in 1943, and in 1947 he created the Cominform, the information bureau of the Communist and Workers' Parties, to take over the Comintern's former duties in enforcing orthodoxy within the international communist movement. Tito's Yugoslavia participated in the common form, but due to several disputes where Tito broke with the Moscow line, aiding the Greek communists, for example, refusing to use Soviet-style joint stock companies in Yugoslavia, and some other more obscure disagreements, the organization eventually expelled the Yugoslavs, and Tito officially became a nationalist, unaligned communist. He reached out to the United States, eventually obtaining the Marshall Plan aid that Stalin denied to the other republics of Eastern Europe, and Tito went on to found the Non-Aligned Movement. The Yugoslav dictator was high in the minds of all of our Western policymakers, and if you read the documents or you read the books that read the documents, you know that people for a decade or more kept asking if this or that communist leader could be a second Tito, from Arbenz to Mossadegh to Mao to Ho. So what I want to establish with that is that contrary to what many of the men involved would later say, and what some apologist conservative historians have tried to allege, the question of nationalist communists did not appear sui generis in the 1970s under Nixon. It was very much alive in the 1940s. 
People recognized by Tito's example that it was possible for a communist not to be beholden to Moscow and to in fact be up for grabs in the great game. Now, what did all this Tito or not Tito talk mean for Vietnam? Kennan didn't write any big books about Cold War policy as it was going on, and I just don't have the time or the ability to dig up and then go through all of his memos from his time at state because I don't have access to the National Archives in D.C. to find out exactly what he thought in the 1940s about Indochina. But I do have some stuff on Asia. From John Lewis Gaddis's book Strategies of Containment, quote, I can't say to you today whether Titoism is going to spread in Europe, Kennan told an audience at the Naval War College in October 1948, but I am almost certain that it is going to spread in Asia. Kennan had been predicting for the past year and a half that the Soviet Union would not be able to control communism in China should it come to power. The men in the Kremlin, he had observed in February 1947, would suddenly discover that this fluid and subtle oriental movement, which they thought they held in the palm of their hand, had quietly oozed away between their fingers, and that there was nothing left there but a ceremonious Chinese bow and a polite and inscrutable Chinese giggle. Kennan even suggested at one point that a communist-dominated China might pose more of a threat to the security of the Soviet Union and to Moscow's control over the international movement than it would to the United States, since such a China would lack for many years an industrial base capable of producing the instruments of amphibious and air warfare. Kennan liked to cite Edward Gibbon's proposition that, quote within a quote now here, there is nothing more contrary to nature than the attempt to hold in obedience distant provinces, unquote. The very process of trying to maintain an empire would, sooner or later, generate resistance sufficient to undermine it. There is a possibility, Kennan commented in September 1949, that Russian communism may someday be destroyed by its own children in the form of the rebellious communist parties of other countries. I can think of no development in which there would be greater logic and justice. Nationalism, then, would prove the most durable of ideologies. It would be through the encouragement of nationalism, whether in areas threatened by communism or within the communist bloc itself, that the objectives of containment would largely be achieved." Unquote. Like I said, I don't have any Kennan texts that speak directly to the situation in Indochina in the late 1940s. But in light of everything else we've read from him and everything that I know about him, I think we can reproduce some Kennan-esque analysis of the situation that we were talking about in the previous history show and that we will be talking about in the next show. What should the United States do about Indochina? First, I think Kennan would say, look, forget all of the rhetoric we spouted and forget for a moment our historical friendship with France. What do we actually know about the situation in so-called Indochina? Ho Chi Minh is a communist, there is no doubt there. But Ho is also willing to dilute that communism and anger Moscow at least as far as dissolving the Indochinese Communist Party and not implementing a slate of communist or socialist policies in the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. We also know that Ho has been a nationalist even longer than he's been a communist. We know that his Viet Minh includes plenty of non-communist nationalists, and we know that every American who's ever met Ho at least thinks that he's brilliant, reasonable, and above all, nationalist. We also know that, even more than Tito, he's made efforts for decades, including during a war against the French, that we are actively helping them to fight, that he has consistently reached out to us, to the United States, for aid, couching those appeals in an excellent understanding of and appreciation for our own values of freedom and national self-determination, a far cry from wanting to be submerged into a globalist communism. So that's first. Second, I think Kennan would ask, what is Vietnam to us? 
If we forget the outlandish domino theory rhetoric about Vietnam, the country is to us rice. Rice for Japan and the rest of Southeast Asia. Rice that, moreover, it can only provide if it's not at war. So in light of all of that, what was it that Kennan might have said that we should do in Vietnam? Well, support Ho. We accept the extant evidence in Tito that a communist isn't just a communist, that Ho, while not a sure bet, is a good candidate for the nationalist independent category. We recognize that he's been reaching out to us specifically for years, and that moreover, we'd be better off in the region if he was our friend rather than Mao's friend. We should help him develop his country, and we should encourage him to supply our other allies in the region with food. If by this point he and the Vietnamese are peeved enough, though in the real world they were infinitely patient and forgiving, to not want any of our help or involvement, then we respect that, and we impress them with our neutrality, extending an open-ended offer of friendship. We recognize, too, that by remaining neutral, there's virtually no way that communist ties will override the perennial enmity between the Viets and the Chinese, and we rest assured that there will be a split between those countries soon enough, as there was immediately after the end of our Vietnam War in the late 1970s. Now, nowadays, a lot of soft-brained morons like to think of Kennan as a kind of wishy-washy moralist who wasn't up to the hard decisions of the Cold War. On the contrary, though, I see him as much more realistic than the hawkish realist, because what he realized was that aggression and war were never really the pragmatic or effective options, even if they let you beat your chest for the boys back home and pretend that you were a big man in your suit there in the Pentagon. What was more realistic in practically any situation was to look at some supposedly negative development in another country, like the election of Arbenz in Guatemala, or Allende in Chile, or Lumumba in Congo, or Sicarno in Indonesia, or Ortega in Nicaragua, and say, yeah, okay, whatever, that's not our business. You keep doing what you're doing, putting out an image of a successful, happy capitalist democracy, offering your friendship and waiting for theirs. You recognize, too, that doing the opposite Getting involved in their politics, fomenting a coup, threatening them from the White House, would be self-defeating in the long run, as it was in every country that I mentioned, pushing the people of those countries in question away, disgusting the rest of the world, and tying down American money and manpower in the process. Realistic bravery, in other words, did not lie in making guns and then pointing them, but having the will to sit on our hands and make use of a little bit of patience. Dean Acheson, who you'll recall from the last episode was Secretary of State under Truman at the end of the 1940s, was on the other side of this issue from Kennan, both in terms of what communism was and what we ought to do about it. We heard at the end of that last show that he at least said a communist is a communist is a communist, and that he was instrumental in putting together the Truman Doctrine, which was much more on the aggressive side of realism. Acheson and Kennan also did not get along, and Acheson effectively demoted the other man, removing him from the policy planning staff and shutting down Kennan's access to himself and the president, all effective the same day that Mao declared victory in China, October 1st, 1949. But Kennan, even before Mao's victory, as he was putting the finishing touches on his full elaboration of containment, had already been falling out of favor with the policymaking elites in Washington, D.C., Inasmuch as his telegram and the article had been sensations, and inasmuch as he had articulated most of what eventually became the U.S. strategy of containment for most of the Cold War, by the late 1940s the world situation was changing in a way that prejudiced Truman and Acheson against him. Added on top of that he was not terribly personable, 
and totally uninterested in selling his ideas to a wider public. I won't go into all of it because this is already an incredibly long section and we'll have enough Washington stuff to talk about without writing a dissertation on George Kennan, but the whole body of containment, everything that we so far described, along with some of the stuff that we haven't and won't, rested on four assumptions. The first was that, because the Russians themselves didn't want any disastrous war, the danger of them provoking a new world war was remote. The second was that, since the United States should be skillfully using the threat of force rather than force itself to influence Soviet policy, and since, after 1949, mutual nuclear armament actually precluded full-scale war, the U.S. could tolerate an imbalance in Soviet and Western forces indefinitely. That is, since war wasn't going to happen, we didn't need to try to have as many tanks and planes as the Russians did in Europe, and they had a lot. The third was that we could and should negotiate with the Russians as often as possible, even if they appeared intransigent, because constant negotiation was the only way we'd be able to move our conflicts from the potential battlefield to the actual conference table. And the fourth assumption was that our diplomacy and grand strategy should be flexible, so as to better adapt and contain the Soviets. With the conflicts ongoing in Greece and Turkey that I mentioned before, with Eastern Europe except for Yugoslavia falling more firmly under the Soviet grip, with tensions constantly escalating in Berlin, with the Soviets having achieved apparent nuclear parity, with the increase in numbers of their forces present on the borders of Western Europe, and with what seemed to be the impending defeat of Chiang Kai-shek's Kuomintang in China, a loss that would give over a fifth of the world's population to communism, the men in the Truman administration were feeling much less sanguine about its power over and against the Red Menace and much less inclined to agree with Kennan's four assumptions. From Halberstam's book, quote, That Kennan was no longer a major player was proof that the debate such as it was had changed, that Acheson was no longer interested in hearing his complicated dissents, thoughtful and worthy though they might have been, and that the administration, whether it realized it or not, was being pulled along by the force of events, crossing over fail-safe points without even realizing it, unquote. Still though, given what we know from the last show, that Acheson was a diplomatic genius, and that Truman found his feet in foreign policy with a speed and a confidence that most presidents never achieve, that all seems like a precipitous move towards a hardline attitude, doesn't it? We know that apart from Acheson's intelligence, he had the wisdom to throw himself behind the Marshall Plan, and we know that at least in Iran and Guatemala, from our shows on those countries, that he was willing to let those little socialisms lie, exactly as Kennan would have wanted. So why the beef with Kennan, and why this hardening attitude that leaned towards a monolithic communism? What was making the very smart Acheson so very dumb? Long answer short, the Republican Party. By the end of Truman's election in 1948, the GOP had been off Pennsylvania Avenue since 1932, and they were pretty well sick of it. Unfortunately, FDR had had the best run of any American president in history, and Truman, despite his relative unpopularity, had been doing a pretty good job too, what with getting the war over with and rebuilding Europe. The Republicans needed to win the 1952 presidential, but they didn't really have an issue of substance to fix on, at least until the Korean War had stalemated in 1951. So, leading up to the fall of China, and then capitalizing on it afterwards, they made an issue up. Using the naive but typical American assumption that our president somehow manages world events, the Republicans began a concerted campaign to attribute every loss against communism, every new red success, not just as a result of the Democrats' weakness, although they did say that, but the result of Democrats actively collaborating with the USSR to bring these events about. 
Republican attacks came from all parts of the party, and before long went from typical political rhetoric to truly evil propaganda. The mainstream party alleged weakness, a failure of resolve, a failure to stand up to Stalin, despite the Truman was, well, standing up to Stalin on a weekly basis. More hardline members of the party, as China was going under, began to allege that the Truman administration and Acheson's State Department were undermining Chang, or even helping Mao. Henry Luce, the head of Time and Life magazines, had spent time with his missionary parents in China, and he believed, as many or most Republicans, and even Americans at large did, that China was eager to become a Christian democracy. And Time and Life spewed that message at the populace week after week, month after month, year after year. It sounds insane, and it is insane, but that was what the American public had been led to believe, that China wanted to be Christian. Luce also encouraged, through his magazines, the belief that the actually Christian Chiang Kai-shek was an ideal leader and partner, always on the verge of defeating the communists. And that was just never true. Chiang was from the first a terrible leader, and everyone we or Luce's magazines ever sent to China found out immediately both that the Kuomintang was hopeless and that a communist victory could only have been a matter of time. Luce used to receive pessimistic reports from his journalists in China, and he just rewrote them to praise Chiang and his imminent victory, meaning that although anyone in China knew the truth, virtually no one in the American public found out. The Truman administration found itself buried by the good news coming out of Luce's magazines, unable to publicly square it with the uniformly negative reports coming back through the State Department. And rather than force Chiang to the table, or pull out of the conflict as a sure loser, Truman and Acheson sent a series of fact-finding missions that invariably returned the same message. There was no winning this one. From Halberstam again, quote, The collapse of Chiang's China quickly became a defining American political issue. Normally the failure of a regime like that would have made only a modest blip in American politics, but this was a different time. After Chiang finally fell in 1949, much was written about how the United States had betrayed him. The reporting on the coming collapse had been spotty and at least partially politicized. Chiang had powerful allies in American journalism, like Harry Luce and Roy Howard of the Scripps Howard chain, who had effectively censored the news filed by their correspondents." Unquote. Yeah, I know he says Harry there. I, I don't know if it's really current in American culture right now, but Harry used to be a nickname for Henry the way that Jack used to be a nickname for John. So. Once Mao had won and China had fallen, Luce and the Republican Party contended that all of those foreign service officers, many of whom had grown up in China, and all of whom had spent their careers there, had been collaborating with Mao and his communists. The evidence Luce and his allies in the GOP used was the body of those officers' own reports. That's a tactic that sounds like it shouldn't work. After all, the officers would have just been reporting the facts. But imagine that you're an average American citizen in 1949. Every year for a decade, your subscription to Time Magazine, or to Life, has been telling you that China's about to become a little Christian American twin, that it will do so following the brilliant Shanghai Shek, and that the only thing which would or could prevent this outcome is insufficient aid from the Truman administration. And then one day, seemingly out of nowhere, because as far as you know, Chiang is winning the war, China goes communist. That's a surprise to you. And then Time begins publishing an expose on the State Department. You see that for years, effete Ivy League bureaucrats have been sending pro-communist and anti-Chang lies back to the Truman administration, saying that this Chinese lion of a man is corrupt, worthless, that we should abandon him and reach out to the godless Reds. 
Truman and Atchison, meanwhile, are either too stupid to see the truth, or have to be actively encouraging this kind of cowardly, traitorous talk in following these bureaucrats' pencil-necked advice. Well, that would sound like a wide-ranging conspiracy of the deep state, one that had maybe been penetrated by communist agents, right? Well, that, in fact, explicitly was the next step. On February 9th, 1950, after China and before the outbreak of war in Korea, in a speech in Wheeling, West Virginia, freshman Senator Joe McCarthy had this to say. Quote, Ladies and gentlemen, can there be anyone tonight who is so blind as to say that the war is not on? Can there be anyone who fails to realize that the communist world has said the time is now? That this is the time for the showdown between the democratic Christian world and the communistic atheistic world? Unless we face this fact, we shall pay the price that must be paid by those who wait too long. Six years ago, there was within the Soviet orbit 180 million people. Lined up on the anti-totalitarian side, there were in the world at that time roughly 1,625,000,000 people. Today, only six years later, there are 800 million people under the absolute domination of Soviet Russia, an increase of over 400%. On our side, the figure has shrunk to around 500 million. In other words, in less than six years, the odds have changed from 9 to 1 in our favor to 8 to 5 against us. This indicates the swiftness of the tempo of communist victories and American defeats in the Cold War. As one of our outstanding historical figures once said, when a great democracy is destroyed, it will not be from enemies from without, but rather because of enemies from within. The reason why we find ourselves in a position of impotency is not because our only powerful potential enemy has sent men to invade our shores, but rather because of the traitorous actions of those who have been treated so well by this nation. It has not been the less fortunate or members of minority groups who have been traitorous to this nation, but rather those who have had all the benefits that the wealthiest nation on earth has to offer. The finest homes, the finest college education, and the finest jobs in government we can give. This is glaringly true in the State Department. There, the bright young men who are born with silver spoons in their mouths are the ones who have been the most traitorous. I have here in my hand a list of 205 a list of names that were made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and shaping policy in the State Department. As you know, very recently the Secretary of State proclaimed his loyalty to a man guilty of what has always been considered as the most abominable of all crimes, being a traitor to the people who gave him a position of great trust. High treason. He has lighted the spark which is resulting in a moral uprising, and will end only when the whole sorry mess of twisted, warped thinkers are swept from the national scene so that we may have a new birth of honesty and decency in government." Unquote. Now, Joe McCarthy's last dig there was about Atchison giving his outspoken support to Alger Hiss, a State Department official accused of espionage, an accusation which was never proved, and who was convicted of perjury, which was. That the number of spies, the place they were at, what they had done, and the lists they were on were always changing and never forthcoming, did nothing to stop Joe McCarthy. And all of this GOP rhetoric, from the weak on communism stuff to the active collaboration, it knew no restraints, and it ruined, in the end, American foreign and domestic politics. When I say it was unrestrained, what I mean is that first, the Republican Party would not rein it or Joe McCarthy in until Eisenhower was nearly two years into office at the end of 1954. And I mean that second, no one was safe. McCarthy accused General George Catlett Marshall, hero of the Second World War, 
maybe the American most dedicated to his country and the world. The man who saved Europe and worked almost to his dying day in the service of the United States. McCarthy, this sweaty little pissant of a man, accused Marshall himself of being a communist agent working for the Kremlin. And this, the GOP tolerated, year after year. On the 14th of June, 1951, after detailing a list of Marshall's supposed collaborations and failures, McCarthy said, quote, What can be made of this unbroken series of decisions and acts contributing to the strategy of defeat? They cannot be attributed to incompetence. If Marshall were merely stupid, the laws of probability would dictate that part of his decisions would serve this country's interests. If Marshall is innocent of guilty intention, how could he be trusted to guide the defense of this country further? We have declined so precipitously in relation to the Soviet Union in the last six years. How much swifter may be our fall into disaster with Marshall at the helm? Where will all this stop? That is not a rhetorical question. Ours is not a rhetorical danger. Where next will Marshall carry us? It is useless to suppose that his nominal superior will ask him to resign. He cannot even dispense with Atchison. What is the objective of the great conspiracy? I think it is clear from what has occurred and is now occurring to diminish the United States in world affairs, to weaken us militarily, to confuse our spirit with talk of surrender in the Far East, and to impair our will to resist evil. To what end? To the end that we shall be constrained, frustrated, and finally fall victim to Soviet intrigue from within and Russian military might from without. Is that far-fetched? There have been many examples in history of rich and powerful states which have been corrupted from within, enfeebled and deceived until they were unable to resist aggression. It is the great crime of the Truman administration that it has refused to undertake the job of ferreting the enemy from its ranks. I once puzzled over that refusal. The president, I said, is a loyal American. Why does he not lead in this enterprise? I think I know why he does not. The president is not a master in his own house. Those who are master there not only have a desire to protect the sappers and miners, they could not do otherwise. They themselves are not free. They belong to a larger conspiracy, the worldwide web of which has been spun from Moscow. It was Moscow, for example, which decreed that the United States should execute its loyal friend, the Republic of China. The executioners were that well-defined group headed by Atchison and George Catlett Marshall." Unquote. Eisenhower, rather than defending the man who had been his mentor during the war and who continued to serve his country after it, Eisenhower, the man who supposedly represents all that was good in the Republican Party, Eisenhower did nothing. At one point on the campaign trail, Ike included a section in his stump speech praising Marshall. Under pressure from his advisors and his party, he cut that section, having never read it in public. When I said that this Republican policy of red-baiting and lying ruined American foreign policy, I don't even yet want to refer to the battle between the Canaanites and the Atchison people. Through a combination of McCarthy's Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, the House Un-American Activities Committee, investigations and internal moves at state, all of those old China hands, the guys who had been writing the pessimistic reports coming out of China, this group who were, according to both Halberstam and Gaddis, the most brilliant minds in the Foreign Service and all of states' brain power in Asia, they had their careers permanently ruined. They were mustered out, shuffled to dead-end posts a world away, or subjected to actual hearings on their communist sympathies, which left them unemployable after they'd been fired. 
It was a betrayal by the United States of the men who had given their lives to nonpartisan service that had not been equaled until the present day, and the Trump administration's so far sustained attack on the foreign and civil services. As Halberstam writes, quote, In time, their personal tragedies became their country's tragedy, as the government made itself blind in an area that would become so important, and where it was critically important, because the forces at play were so volatile and revolutionary, to separate what you did not like from what actually threatened you. None of the China hands was a real player in October 1950, when American forces disastrously crossed the 38th parallel heading north in Korea, and none would be a player when the key Vietnam decisions were made some 15 years later." Unquote. The Republican policy of communist scaremongering, blame assigning, and intentional mendacity ruined domestic politics by making sure that any Democrat now had to prove his anti-communist bona fides three times as hard as any Republican. Which is why, for example, a decade on, you had JFK and Bobby Kennedy telling the world that they hated the Reds even more than Richard Milhouse Nixon. The effect of that shift in the U.S. scene, the paranoia, the red-baiting, was a hardening of Atchison's and Truman's positions abroad as a response. By the middle of 1950, neither Truman nor his Secretary of State were as willing as they had been a few years ago to acknowledge that there were different kinds of communists, and that some of them might be worth ignoring or even working with. All of that kind of talk, now that the Republicans had riled up the public in favor of an all-or-nothing, us-or-them view of the world, sounded like collaborationism, sounded like being weak on communism, sounded like you might just be a commie yourself. Now you might say that Truman and Acheson didn't have to give in, didn't have to change their stances. You might say something that sounds like an SFD position and cry out that they could have just explained manners to the American people, trusted in the American public's ability to understand this nationalist versus communist debate, and accept that the fall of China was no big deal, that besides being no big deal, it was unavoidable if we didn't want to invade ourselves, and that there was no reason to be worried about Vietnam or Guatemala or Iran or anywhere else either. And in fact, that's what Truman and Acheson tried to do. Once China went under, they did something totally unprecedented at state. They commissioned a giant report, essentially throwing open the China desk's files, detailing how hopeless Chang had been from the very beginning, laying out all the American attempts to prop him up, the costs, the massive quantities of arms he'd squandered, sold, or lost to the communists, all the ways that he'd failed time and again. It detailed the corruption and the inefficiency of the Kuomintang from the start, quoted those old China hands and the generals, like Stilwell, who had agreed with them. It laid out the plain case that the communists were better leaders and fighters, and that the only way we collaborated with them was by not invading China ourselves in 1950. That report, the most open and honest tell-all in American diplomatic history, fell on deaf ears. Americans who had been propagandized into an incredibly simplistic, conservative, Manichaean view of the world by Henry Luce and the Republican Party either ignored the report entirely or viewed it as an ass-covering attempt by an already compromised administration, full of half-truths and full lies, a view wholeheartedly encouraged by time and life, week after week. It is a weakness of the American system of government that when the public pays attention, our foreign policy becomes entirely beholden to the vagaries of domestic politics and the power plays of the parties. This is what Kennan was worried about when people throw around the idea that he was somehow anti-democratic. It was a weakness of the party system and of Truman and Acheson that they gave in under this pressure, consciously or unconsciously, and let the atmosphere of terror and paranoia and their concerns about the next election change their own attitudes. 
It was not a weakness, but an act of real wrongdoing on the Republican part to create that atmosphere, and then to tolerate the right-wing fringe like McCarthy, censuring him only after he delivered them the White House and a thoroughly broken politics. It's worth noting here that between this whole period of red-baiting, the party's fence-sitting until Watergate got too big to ignore, its willingness to say nothing about Iran-Contra, letting Reagan allege that he had no idea that he was breaking the law, that the Republican Party's current position, its aiding and abetting of the Trump administration's massive corruption, incompetence, and criminality, isn't a departure from the party I once knew, or the party of Eisenhower, as the never-Trumpers are so fond of saying. It is, and has been, Republican policy for, at best, 70 years, and at worst, longer than that. The result of all this was that Dean Acheson, maybe the most intelligent Secretary of State of the last century, made himself dumber, subsuming his knowledge of a complex world where a communist was not a communist was not a communist into a new, simpler, stupider worldview where red was red. George Kennan, whose views had had trouble taking hold from the beginning, long before this Republican propaganda campaign, didn't change his thinking, and for that reason he was increasingly marginalized after his 1915 emotion, even as a corrupted version of his strategy of containment went on to govern U.S. policy for decades. There were a few effects of this hardening of our policy on communism abroad. We had originally had little interest in the non-communist regime in South Korea, even though we were sponsoring it. South Korea at the time had barely any agriculture above subsistence and no industry to speak of. In Kennan's containment terms, it was a total non-entity compared to Japan, which was crucial. In 1950, just as McCarthy was ramping up his insanity, Truman and Acheson made public statements about Korea being pretty whatever to us, as it really was. But when Kim Il-sung invaded in the summer of that year, Truman felt himself unable to countenance the fall of another country to the Reds, no matter how marginal to our own actual national interest, and so we counter-invaded. In Indochina, we became less and less willing to consider Ho as his own man, and more and more susceptible to French claims that they were fighting the good fight against world communism, a claim that Henry Luce and the Republican Congress amplified at every opportunity. And we ended up backing the French war, forgetting our old friendship with Ho and our qualms about colonialism entirely. In the long term, this unwillingness to see the daylight between different communisms prevented our reconciling with China until the 1970s, basically forced us into our war in Vietnam, and gave us both the motive and cover for dozens of dirty little coups and interventions, from Guatemala to Iran to Indonesia to Cambodia to the Congo to so many others. If you want to pin the great tragedy of the Cold War, that it became a series of hot wars and muddled, quieter, uglier ones, instead of a real test of two ideologies competing non-violently for the minds of the Third World, you can't help but pin it on the malevolence of the Republican Party of the 1940s, on Henry Luce, and on the weakness of Democratic leaders who were too afraid to stand up for what they knew to be true, and what's more, what they knew to be right. <laughs>